Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger, an African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? We are so excited for our next guest. Jessie is brilliant, insightful, brave, bold, and hysterical. She's been featured everywhere from the New York Times to TMZ. Now there's a range. She's a writer, a director, an actress who uses her art to openly share her experience. She is sought after for her voice that ranges from the comedic to the tragic to the real and always, always huge doses of honesty and humility. Welcome, Jesse Conweiler. <laughs> Am I wealthy? I love that. <laughs> Tell my bank account that. <laughs> that was good, Suze. Big finish. I love writing opens. <laughs> yeah, Susie's the best at opens. Jesse. So like I said, I feel like I know you. I'm so pleased to meet you and spend some time with you. I binge watch everything that you did. And right. super impressive. Yeah, it's oh, so fun you. and insightful. The skinny had me so nervous, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> so I know why I wanted to know you. But tell our audience why everyone should want to know who you are. Oh, I'm not sure that they should. I'm a very acquired taste, <laughs> as my boyfriend can tell you. Yeah, I don't know. I think that in my work, in my life, I really pride myself on just like having levity and really not taking life too seriously. And that weirdly allows me to kind of like go to the deepest, darkest places and explore hard things, but also do it with a sense of comedy and truth, which for me is comedy. And so, yeah, if you want to get in the shit, I'm a good person to know, I guess. That's great. That's great. I love that. So tell us about your 10 year relationship with bulimia and what you learned the most. Yeah, I mean, I think. It was a really, you know, to me, it was like the best that I could do at the time when I was 16, when I became bulimic and it was kind of like the tools that I had for survival mm -hmm. and feeling safe and getting rid of my anxiety and all those things. And then I think a lot with addiction, it's like one of those things that starts out as like a, a crutch, but then it starts to really like own you and take over your life. So I'm really weirdly grateful for the experience because now, I mean, I'm 36 now. I got into recovery when I was 27, I believe. Even now when I'm like, when I cry or I have like a real moment, there's like a part of me, like I don't take anything for granted. Like I feel like I have an inner peace that's very hard one because I've been through a, a lot of time and a lot of years where my body and my mind were just like not safe places. So I don't really take anything for granted. Well, I mean, like all of us, I'm on my phone or whatever, but you know, I really try to like be present and be like, wow, I've come a really, really long way. So it's given me perspective, I think. You know, you used recovery. We've had guests on here who don't tie into that recovery language. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I guess it's hard because there is like an anonymity 
bit of it. So I kind of like to speak pretty broadly about it, but I do several things. Like one of them is a very robust meditation program and um, journaling. And I have a lot of friends who have kind of walked the same path that I have that we're kind of in it together. So it's like a lot of different and exercise. And, you know, there's so many things that I do that kind of support this lifestyle. Like it kind of made sense to me that like, if I was going to give up binging and purging and obsessing about my body, I had to replace it with something else, you know? And there's only so many hours a day you can masturbate. (laughs) (laughs) That's good to know. (laughs) I'm going to take your word for that. Which is great. That's a great tool. (laughs) That's awesome. So how did you manage your mental health during that period of time? You said that it was the tools you had to cope. Was there anything else that you were doing for your mental health or really was that your coping skills, just, you know, the tool you had, so to speak? The eating disorder? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the eating disorder was like part of, it's hard to tell like what were, what was my issues and what was just like being in my twenties, you know? Cause I think I my twenties look a lot different than my thirties. Thank God. But I think if I could take a step back, it was really like in my twenties, everything was about like speed and drama. So it was like, bulimia is like a very dramatic eating disorder. You know, it's just like, you got to get the food. You got to get rid of the food. You got to keep mm-hmm. the secret. You got to whatever. And I was also drinking a lot and like drinking, like binge drinking, I, I guess you would call it now and using drugs and, you know, whatever, and having sex with all types of people, whatever. And I don't regret my twenties at all. It was like a really fun time, but it was also like, I put myself in some pretty reckless situations because I wasn't really in tune with my intuition and my body. So you have to keep kind of getting more and more stimulation because you're not, you can't feel it. And so now in my thirties, like it's all about taking baths and taking what, like all that boring stuff. But it's like, oh, that's what I really need. Cause I'm naturally very go, go, go. Yeah. So did family members know and say therapy something or was it just, it was it really that secret you were able to keep? Yeah. It's, it's kind of complicated because I think my parents, like we had talked about it, but it wasn't until, and they had like found food in my room and stuff, but I was a really good liar. And I think also like now that I have some perspective, I can kind of see their point of view of like, well, they just like love me and wanted me to be okay. And I was always like, I'm okay, I'm great. You know, so what were they really supposed to do? But I think there's like certain friends would say something or boyfriends if I wasn't eating or whatever, but I was genuinely very, very, very good at getting away with stuff. And most of all, like getting away with it for myself, you know, like I didn't even recognize the fact that I was bulimic. I didn't even say that word until I like got into recovery. I was just like, oh, that's like that thing I do sometimes. Okay. Wow. You know, the idea that, that you- <laughs> Yeah, I didn't tell you that's what this is. No, you didn't <laughs> relate to that because for those of you out there that don't know, I had a very strong relationship with anorexia, but I was in total denial until I was in recovery. Yeah. Same thing. And we've never talked about this. Until, yeah. you, until you went into treatment, you mean? The treatment, yes. Yeah. Till I went into treatment. So you were bold enough to star in the skinny and tell your own story from the inside out, which was part of, I think, what's so riveting about it and, you know, really triggered a lot of emotion in me watching it. What made you choose to do that? That was so bold. I feel like I definitely, whenever I make something, I'm not like, 
well, thank you very much, but I'm not like, I'm going to be bold. You know, it's a very much like from the inside out. Like I never was like, I make comedies. Like that was just my voice. And then people are like, oh, you make dark comedies and this is what you do. I was always just like, I felt, and perhaps it was like being new into recovery. This was the first project I did and kind of wanting to understand it. Like why, like, why is it that I called my folks? I've always been a feminist and yet I was bulimic for 10 years and never said it out loud. Like how could those two things coexist inside of me and just me trying to make sense of it. And, you know, the way that I process things is through humor, but also, you know, really like going there and showing the rawness, I think. And also I really was pissed off because the only projects I'd ever seen about people with eating disorders was like the ballerina that was 20 pounds and whatever. And like those stories deserve to be told, but like, what about my story? What about so many people like me? Okay. You know, you showed so much emotion. I mean, at times I felt like, you know, I was in the bathroom with you. You just drudged up so much of what it was really like, it seems. I mean, I don't know, obviously, personally, but it's pretty powerful, I have to tell you. Yeah, I just, I binged on it. (laughs) So you've had a number of big projects. Which one would you say changed your life the most? They all kind of like, they're like your kids, you know, like, I don't know how you can pick a favorite. Like they all, what I will say about like the creative life is it's really cool how each project speaks to the next. And like, you have to do one project to get there, to get there. And then you kind of look back and be like, God, like, thank God I worked on that because then it influenced me to do, like I worked on the skinny and then I worked on that project with you, Susie. And, you know, it's just kind of cool how, yeah, I've loved every phase of every project. So like just everything brought, every project has brought something to your life. Yeah. Whether that be like absolute misery or <laughs> learning how to deal with rejection or like creating something and working on something. And then like two years in being like, this isn't really what I'm trying to say. Okay. Let me go back to the blank page. Like it's to me, it's like creativity is such a, a lesson in resilience. That's been like mm-hmm. the number one characteristic of it's not about finding my passion and what it's really just been like being able to be resilient and keep showing up. Yeah. Okay. That's powerful. We always talk about culture on this podcast and I want to know what your upbringing and your cultural environment, what was it and how did it prepare you for this journey? That's such a beautiful question. I immediately, I just thought of my uncle, my uncle, Edward Keating, unfortunately, passed away on Sunday. Um, Yeah, thank you, thank you. But so I've been thinking a lot about my upbringing and my family. And he was a photographer for, he was on staff for the New York Times for a while. He won the Pulitzer. He was this kind of crazy renegade photojournalist, as was my aunt, Carrie Boratz. My grandfather was a screenwriter, Alvin Boratz. So I grew up in Atlanta and they were all in New York. And I just have so many amazing memories of just like going into the city and staying with them and looking at my aunt and uncle's prints and watching my grandpa and his study on the typewriter. And it's really amazing like that, you know, I had really amazing parents and they were super supportive and they sent me to the camps and they helped nurture my talent. But I also feel like I have this breath of older relatives and family friends and stuff that were creative and that were artists. And I think when you're a kid, you're like, oh shit, I can do that. Like I can be weird and like be kind of messy and 
I didn't get really good grades in high school, you know, and that I could, that that was an option, that this thing that was inside of me, this stirring of my soul could be like my career. And so, yeah, I've been feeling really grateful for all those influences I had. You know, you, I'm going to let Susie take over, but you brought something up that I think is important to highlight, which is you're talking about access. You know, you're talking about the idea of having this, being able to see yourself in the future through someone else. You yeah. know, so many kids in poverty and so many kids from the global majority don't have that. And people always get mad at them in school. Like, why don't you want to? You know, how come you don't want to succeed? What does succeed mean when you don't have visions of yourself in the future as a potential of who you can be. So that's really beautiful that you had that. That's amazing. I wish that for everyone. Thank you for sharing. I, I agree. And, and it's totally this position of privilege. And I think we have to take a step back and go like, fuck, like the only reason I'm here is because I didn't have like one person that believed in me. I had like teams of people that exactly what you're saying. I had camp counselors and my parents' friends and teacher and whatever, and all these people. And that's what it takes for every kid. Like that's how much support you need when you're already, because I was just going up against the negativity that was basically in my mind. You know what I mean? So think about the kids that are actually right, right. Facing food insecurity and all of, all of those things. It's like, that's the system that needs to change. We need to look back and go, okay, like how do we change this? Because yeah, every kid deserves that. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. You know what, Jesse, I'm going to sort of combine two questions into one because you mentioned your privilege. Do you think about how to use your privilege responsibly in your work and in your life? Yes. I think it's this like, it's this thing of being like, I want to tell the truth and tell my stories and tell it honestly, but then also having to go like, what is my position in the bigger picture? And I think a lot of my privilege in terms of how to use my privilege is like taking a step back and like supporting other people. And there's been a couple of projects that I've been like, this is absolutely not my story to tell. Like, I'm going to take a step back so that somebody who, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can do a lot in your little circle. Right. There's all, all things that we can do all the time. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of resent this, like, sorry, going off. Cause this happened after me too, where like guys would be like, Oh, but it's like men can't say anything anymore. And like, there's a little bit of that, like, Oh, white people can't do anything. Right. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's the fact that white people need to get more comfortable being uncomfortable because it is nothing compared to the discomfort that non-white people experience, you know, and I can even find myself being defensive sometimes. And it's like, no bitch, like myself, like shut up. So I still have a lot of work to do. Well, I can relate to that too. And the defensiveness, as JD knows, it comes up almost unconsciously sometimes. And I'm like, wow, I just said that, or I just defended that. So taking a position on that, do you think that your projects are relatable to other cultures? If so, how, why, or why not? Yeah, I think I'm so boring on this, but I really, I do try to think about my projects in the larger world. And, but I also feel like I just try to be specific to my experience. And when I do that, I feel like that is the greatest thing for not just like Jewish white girls from Atlanta to like it, you know? So um, yeah, I try to just be really specific and true to my experience and how I see the world, but just try not to be full of shit. Cause I think there's a lot of people now that are like, oh, yeah, like let me have a diverse character. It's not authentic. Yeah. 
Right. Right. And I've heard you say no. I've heard you. We've talked about projects where you're like, nope, that's not my story to tell. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Can I just jump in for a second? I wanted to add something to what you said that I think is really important to emphasize, which is this idea that your experience being authentic with your experience does teach others. You know, and I always say that in trainings that I do, it's like, I'm talking from my experience, but I'm also talking from 60 something years of experience of people around me. So I may be talking as an individual experience, but I'm also talking about a collective experience. And I think that does speak to others. I think that's something that resonates with people. So I, I thank you for making that point. Yeah. All right. I'm going to shift gears. You've talked about wanting children, but not wanting to scare off men in the process. What does that look like for you? Oh, when do I say that? Like last year. Because I love scaring men. That's my favorite. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's my cardio is scary. <laughs> what does that look like? I froze my eggs. I don't know if we talked about that, Susie. Um, no, we haven't, but we've read about it. So, <laughs> yes. You sound like my mom. Yeah, I was working on a project when I was like 32. This was really funny. I was working on a project when I was 32 and well, no, I was dating a guy and I was like, this guy is awesome. Like finally, this guy can like pay for dinner. He has a car. This was like a huge step up for me. Nice guy. And I remember we were like sitting at a restaurant and he was like, uh, I was like, oh, look at that cute kid. And he was like, yeah, but I don't want kids. And I was like, oh, that's cool. No big deal. Whatever. And then we went home and then we were hooking up and I was like, you just like never want kids. Like not even in like a couple of years, you know? And he was like, no, I never want kids. And I was like, I had to have that experience to make me realize like, oh, I want kids. Like I had to say it out loud. And he like got outside of like pulled out, literally <laughs> like pulled out my life. <laughs> and then a couple years later, I was working on a project about infertility and surrogacy. And I was interviewing all these women and they just were in their forties. And they were like, I just wish I would have froze my eggs. It was like common, but not as many people were doing it as they are now. Um, yeah. So when I was 32, I froze my eggs. I'm 36 now. It was really amazing. Like speaking of privilege, a huge privilege to do it. Cause it allowed me those couple years to just like because dating was just becoming like a job, you know, it was so much pressure. It was not fun for me. It definitely wasn't fun for the guys. I met my boyfriend a month before Corona. So like February of 2020, which was crazy. Yeah. So we've been together since then. We just moved in together like two weeks ago, actually. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And so what it looks like now is like, he hasn't left yet, but (laughs) We joke about it because I think it was like third date. He's like, he's a little bit younger than me. He's 29. It was our third date. And I was like, do you want kids? Like eating my pizza. Just like, do you want kids? And he was like, oh yeah, totally. And you know, my uterus was like, okay, this feels like a good one. You know, you can, you can relax. A lot of my friends don't ask. They're afraid of like scaring those guys. But I think freezing my eggs empowered me to be like, no, I think about my reproductive health. And I think about this because it's something I want. It's well, such a long answer. Sorry. No, no it's a great I answer. Love, I love what you said. And I also, you know, I'm going to steal your words from you that you're not waiting on anyone else's timeline that you yeah. took the power and the control and you decided to say it out loud. I want kids. Yeah was obviously like a real experience for you being able to name it afterwards and actually stand by it and take control of it. 
And I think it gave me the confidence that I like when I met my boyfriend, I was like, this is awesome. Like I would love for this to work out, but I never felt like I have to like lock him in because then the ticking, 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 you know what I mean? And by the way, even if you freeze your eggs, like that's not going to stop your mom from nagging you. <laughs> your mom is such a character. <laughs> but it, it, I feel really lucky to like get to have the time to like date and fall in love and just know like no matter what, I'll have a family if I want to have a family. I love that. And what do you want your future child to know about the world that we live in? I want her. <laughs> It's going to be a girl. No, I don't know. I want her to know that as naive as this sounds like that the world is your friend. I feel like, you know, you can be raised with like the world. People are out to get you and fuck you over or like the world is, is a friendly place and that it's okay to need people and it's okay to be needed. And yeah, to not, there's a lot of horrible, awful, unjust things in the world but you have a choice with how much you contribute to that. Not to say you're not going to go through shit, but like there's hope. There's always hope. Can I just say that I can't wait to meet little Jessie? And that's what I'm going to call her. Yeah. (laughs) Jessie Jr. I can't wait to meet her. (laughs) Jessie, I'm going to turn it back over to JD, but before I do, I just want to thank you for coming on and being so honest and you totally live up to everything that I had in my mind for what this would look like. So thank you. Oh, I love you, Susie. And I love your mom. No, thank you. She loves you too. So where can people find you in your work? I am I'm on Instagram at Jesse underscore Conweiler, which is a lot of letters. So just. All the letters. You should have put that in your name right there, but we'll put it on the promo. <laughs> I'm always like Jesse Jewish. <laughs> and then you can check out all my work is on my website, just my Okay. Awesome. So one of the things that we ask all the time, we get excellent answers and I have no doubt you will not disappoint. What does changing the narrative mean for you? I think like everything, it starts internally. I think just changing I can have pretty like squirrel energy I call it like where it's like oh what what's happening what do I need to do how do I fix this and just taking a step back and girl it's okay relax you know it's you're enough what you're doing is enough it's just enough to be a human some days you know like you're still here um so I think changing that narrative because it radically that kind of self-compassion radically changes how I treat every other person in my orbit. So all right. if we were nicer to ourselves, what kind of world would it be? I can't even, yeah, you know, I hear you. Well, I want to say thank you so much for coming on and hanging out with us and being honest, as Susie said, we really appreciate it. Glad I got to know you and binged on your website. And I think I've consumed everything thus far. (laughs) You're good. I'm going to go back and I'm going to go back and look again. (laughs) Well, thanks, Jamie. I mean, I always love, you know, therapy. So this was great. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. That's a good plug to leave with. Thank you so much for coming on. Free therapy. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Take care and promise to come back. I will. I will. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Katie and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.